So we're in our second week of this series that we've titled Core, where we're looking at the core values of our, of our church, the things that we esteem as uh, of utmost importance and the driving forces behind much of what we do and who we hope to be uh, as a local church. And so last week we talked about the idea of disciple making or discipleship and uh, why that's important to us, that we would be a people who are so relationally connected to God and to one another that Via those relationships, the Lord would cause us to, to be shaped and formed into the image and likeness of Jesus. Discipleship is that relational context whereby we're, we're made more like Christ, where we learn from one another, where we, where we grow in the faith. God uses these relationships, the, the gifts, the capacities, the talents, the wisdom that he's placed within a local church to, to shape us, to form us, to, uh, to sanctify us, and to make us more like Christ. And so that, that's why that value is kind of at the forefront for us. We, we say that the church is uh, not just an event we attend, but it is, it is a relationship we engage. And it's through those relationships that the Lord makes us more like Jesus. Well, today we're going to look at our second value and the one that I think uh, causes those relationships or moves those relationships in the, the direction that God would have them go. And that's the value of the gospel, the, the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and why it's such a high value for us, why we're going to bring everything through that filter. Uh, it comes large, in large part due to, due to the fact that that's what the scripture teaches, most notably here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I don't know how familiar you are with the letters to the Corinthian church, but the Corinthian church was in a bit of a sad state when Paul writes this letter. There's all sorts of conflict going on within the church. There's rampant immorality. There's big pressing questions about sexuality and about the way that they interact with one another, about the gifts that they have. And at the conclusion of this letter, Paul brings everything back into focus and says, I want to remind you about the main thing. I'm going to keep this one value, this one priority, this one goal in front of you, namely the truth and the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look with me, if you will, 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is the word of the Lord. Back uh, when my wife and I first got engaged, I was trying to finish up college. I took a job working for an electronics company in the town where we were living at the time. And it was my first corporate job, first job where I had to sit at a cubicle in front of a computer all day long on a phone with a headset, calling people to see if I could sell them electronics. And so uh, part of the process of that job, though, first corporate job, was you had to go through their, their training regimen, which involved you like sitting 
in front of. At that time, it was kind of like um, those of you who grew up in the 80s or the 90s and you went to elementary school, the, the big uh, TV-VCR combo that would come rolling into the classroom that you learned that was going to be the most fun day of the week. Uh, so that, that's what happened to my job for training. They just rolled it into a room and I had to sit and watch these videos. And most of those videos were safety training. And I could tell that the, the HR lady that was kind of in charge of that, she just had to mark down that I had watched them. And instead of spreading them out, which you could tell by the videos, it was meant to be watched like one at a time for six weeks. She was like, let's just do this until you're done with them. So I spent like three days watching safety training videos. And because of that, that gave you like a little manual, a little booklet that you had to fill in the blank to show that you actually watched it to turn it in so the lady could put it in your folder and say that you did it. But every one of those videos ended with a, this is the most important thing. And so it was, there was a thing on CPR, there was a thing that could tell whether or not one of your fellow employees was having a heat stroke, even though we were in cubicles in the air conditioning, I don't know why, I had to watch that. There was things about proper use of box cutters, there was how to use the fire extinguisher, like it, it, it took forever and it was ridiculous. But every one of them ended with, what was the most important thing? And you had to fill that in. And I remember thinking, after about the third most important thing, how can you have multiple most important things? Like if a guy's having a heat stroke while there's a fire and someone's running with a box cutter, what do I do? You know, like I've got three most important things that I'm supposed to remember and do in these moments. And that's sort of, um, I bring that up because I'm still kind of wrestling with the pain of having to watch all those. But I think that so, so many times in the faith and in the church, we tend to do a similar thing. We, we're so inundated with Bible information. Maybe you've been a part of the church for a long period of time. You've been... Uh, you've been through this before. You kind of heard the Bible taught. It, you can really quickly kind of begin to get confused about what is the most important thing? What are we doing here? What do we uphold? What are the values? What's driving us? What's compelling us? What's sending us forward? And that's why what I love so much about this particular passage that we just read is that the Apostle Paul, being the pragmatist that he is, is okay to a church that's in really disarray, a church that's wrestling with all sorts of problems and issues, a church that's made up of real human beings that really sin and really have conflict and really have, you know, things that need to be reconciled or resolved, Paul says, okay, after telling you about all the things and looking at all the stuff that's kind of in your midst, I want to remind you of the main thing. I want to bring you back to the one thing, the most important thing, through which if we get this thing right, then all the other things, I think, come into focus and get dealt with appropriately. But if we miss this thing, we miss everything. And that is the hope of the gospel, he says. The gospel that I preached that you received, in which you now stand, and by which you will be saved if you continue to believe the gospel. You know, I almost preached from Galatians chapter 2 this morning. I went back and forth all week. Which one of these passages are we going to look at? Because what I love about the, the book, of, the, Paul's ending in Corinthians, is that he's got a church with all sorts of moral deficiencies, and he says the gospel's the cure for that. And then he writes in the church to the church in Galatia, a church that from what we can tell doesn't have the same set of problems, appears to be made up of mostly really moral people, and he calls them dumb. He says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Because they get all the other things right, but they get the main thing wrong. And so you can look at, and we'll see some of this this morning, you can contrast these two things. What happens if a church has all sorts of problems, but they end up getting the gospel right? Paul's eventually going to say, then everything's going to turn out okay. But a church can get everything in line, so to speak, and miss the gospel. And then what's the point, Paul says? Let's just go back to what we were doing before. 
And so I want to show you, I think, four things this morning about the, 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 the priority of the gospel for a church to be the people of God, to, to grow into the image and likeness of Jesus, to, to resemble him and to reflect him, the ways that it corrects our, our lives and our, our pattern and our conduct, the way that, that it really drives everything. Four things about the gospel this morning that I think Paul shows here that we would be wise to reflect upon and to apply to our own lives today. The first thing that we see is that the gospel is essential. The gospel is essential. Look back again in verses 1 and 2, and let me show you where I come up with that idea. Uh, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So at the conclusion of a letter that's written to a church that's wrestling with all sorts of discord and disunity, At the conclusion of a letter that's written to a church that's really walking through some rampant immorality, Paul ends with the good news of the gospel and the hope of the resurrection as the key, the antidote to all that they're wrestling with and all that they're dealing with. If people are really struggling with reality and really struggling with the flesh, this is what you do, Paul says. I want to remind you of the most important thing, and it is utterly essential. Without this, we're not a church. Without this, we're not followers of Jesus. Without this, we're without hope. That's what he goes on to say at the end of this chapter. He says, look, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It's the same thing in Galatians chapter 2. There Paul says, look, if, if righteousness could be attained through the law, then Jesus died for nothing. Like this is the point. This is the thing. He brings it all to a crescendo. And I want to show you this morning why it's so essential for you. That if, you've here, if you're here this morning and you've been in church maybe your whole life, you've tried to do all the things, say all the right things, believe all the right things, sing all the right things, participate in all the right things, but you still feel that something's missing, this is the thing. This is the one thing. With it, you get everything. Without it, you get nothing. It's the hinge upon which all of the faith turns. It's the good news of what God has done for us in the person of Jesus, in his life, in his death, and his resurrection. Just look at the tenses. Look at the ways that, that, that Paul frames it as he even starts out here in, in verse 1. He says, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you. Here it is. Which you received, past tense, in which you stand, present tense, and by which you are being saved, future tense. So everything about the Christian life is wrapped up in this idea of this gospel that these people have in the past received, in the present are standing in, and into the future can hope to be utterly and totally redeemed through. The totality of the Christian life, in other words, words, is wrapped up in this idea of the gospel. So let's look at them real quick. The past in which uh, what you received, this good news that was preached to them, that the people believed in, they they had their faith moved from faith in themselves or faith in some other God to faith in Jesus, marked by repentance. And it it happened in the past. There was a reception of the good news of the gospel. So Paul says you, in the past, you, you received it. The Bible and other places would talk about that as justification. That in that moment of belief, In that instant, whenever we say, I'm no longer trusting in myself to be my own Lord and Savior, but I'm instead trusting in Jesus, who lived my life, died my death, was raised on the third day. That moment of faith, you are then justified before God. It's just as if you've never sinned. It's just as if you always obeyed. And in that moment, we are forgiven of sin's penalty. 
The curse that was meant to befall all sinners. The curse that was given to Adam and Eve in the garden. The the curse of humanity and a broken creation that wrestles with sin and continues to wrestle with the flesh. In that moment of faith, that penalty doesn't fall on us. It falls on Jesus. He died in our place for our sins. And Paul says that if you believed the gospel, that there's some time in the past when you received that. You're justified before God. The penalty of sin is no longer a threat to you in the future. It changes everything. But it's not just something that happened in the past. This is one of the things about like modern evangelical sort of southern culture ideologies about about faith and about church and about the Bible. We've been trained in some ways to believe that you can go to some event when you're a little kid. You can go to vacation Bible school. You can go to church camp. You can make this one-time decision where you, by faith, trust in Jesus. You, You know you'll get out of hell. You get to go to heaven, and then you can go on living your merry little life. Whatever ambitions, hopes, dreams, aspirations you have, yeah, live it up. Do whatever you want to do because you've done what you need to do to get right with God. So now you can just move on. And Paul says, no, no. The gospel that you received is the same gospel that you now stand in. As one theologian says, the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A to Z of Christianity. It's everything. You now stand in it. In other words, there's a present tense about it. It is the way that we are sanctified. Our sanctification is standing in the gospel. That is the the way that God shapes us and forms us into the image and likeness of Jesus. In justification, we're released from sin's penalty. In sanctification, we're increasingly being released from sin's power. We're growing in our our faith. We're growing in our resilience. We're growing in our our hope. We're growing in our ability to to be and to, to look like, smell like perhaps, Jesus himself. That's what Paul would say to the church in Galatia at the end of his letter. Look, there's fruit that's born from faith. We become more patient. We become more kind. We become gentle. We have have self-control. We're faithful. We love one another. We increasingly find ourselves in this network of relationships that we call discipleship. We increasingly find ourselves acting like Jesus towards one another. We abide in him, and he abides in us. That's what it means to stand in the gospel. As Martin Luther would once tell the church that Christianity is marked by ongoing repentance. We never grow beyond repentance. We're always coming to an awareness of the things in our lives that the Lord's leading us to turn from and to turn towards Jesus. And as we repent and as we grow in faith, we become more like Christ. That's the essence of discipleship, and it's what it means to stand in the gospel. But Paul says that's not it either. That's not the totality of the Christian life. He says, by which you are being saved, by which you're going to continue to to move in this pattern, to move in this direction, which is glorification, coming to the place where you will be ultimately freed from sin's presence altogether. If you continue to believe the gospel, Paul says, if you continue to persist in faith, there will come a day in the future when, when the Lord himself comes for you either death or in the return of Jesus. And in so doing, we will be utterly released from this body of sin and and the flesh itself. We'll be utterly renewed in the presence of King Jesus. We'll be made and redeemed to be who we were to be in the beginning. That's the hope of the gospel. Now, the application for this then, Paul says, is that you have to continue to hold to that. You hold fast to that word that I preached to you. You cling to it. You, you, You are taken by it. There's an ongoing repetition and recital of the gospel in our hearts. If you hold fast to the word that was preached to you, the potential exists for all of us, in other words, 
to give up on the gospel, to think that there's got to be something better. There's got to be some new teaching, some, some new way of getting my behavior in line, some, some way of, of, of looking out on the horizon and figuring out what's coming next so that I can be better prepared for it instead of just always going back to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Paul says there isn't. To a people who struggle, to a people who are gripped by sin at times, to a people who struggle to hold on to hope. He says, you got to keep going back to the fact that Jesus lived your life and died your death. That he rose again. That in believing in him, being baptized into a death like his in baptism, you're raised to walk a new life. And the very life that raised Jesus from the dead now resides within you as well. It is the lifeblood of God's people. It's the way that we're formed into the image and likeness of Jesus. The gospel is essential. Now, Peter would write in 1 Peter to a church that's struggling in persecution, struggling with, with knowing how to, how to move forward with a threat, ever-present threat of, 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 of violence uh, or, or of some sort of um, pushback from the authorities. To those people, Peter would say essentially the same thing in 1 Peter. He said, I want to remind you of, of the living hope that we have through the resurrection of Jesus. And he says, I want to remind you of this. In 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, because all flesh is like grass. It's glory like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the good news of the gospel that was preached to you. If you want to hold on until the end, if you want to make it through persecution, if you want to make it through suffering, if you want hope, if you want endurance, if if you want perseverance, that all comes through the gospel as well. A living hope is going to be a gospel-centered church because there's no other way for salvation, for growth, for holiness, for Christ-likeness, for discipleship to happen outside the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's the way that God ordained it. Secondly, the gospel is not just essential. The gospel, Paul says, is central. Look at verse 3. Paul says, okay, I want to remind you of the one thing that is the main thing, the thing that you got to keep above all the other things, and here's why I'm doing it. Verse 3, for I deliver to you as of, here it is, first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul shows us that the gospel is the first priority, and it's not the first priority because it's his idea. He says, this is what the Bible is all about. The Bible makes the good news of the gospel central. The Bible centers Jesus as the person through which it makes sense, the person through which it's understandable and applicable. Jesus is the point of all the scriptures. It's the thing that the Bible's always pointing to, either in the Old Testament, Christ's coming, in the New Testament, Christ has come, lived, died, and rose again. All of it is found and centered in the person of Jesus. And we've got to know as we read the scriptures that the scriptures tell us that it's entirely possible that we can keep reading the Bible and miss the point of the Bible. Like Jesus' biggest threat and enemies in his day were the people who were masters of the Bible. They knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. But Jesus is always telling them, look, you get it completely wrong. You've missed the main thing. You've brought some other things up as the main thing, and now you're missing the main thing, and so the whole thing is a sham. The whole thing's a facade. Read Matthew 23 sometime and see what's possible to a people who who say they believe the Bible backwards and forwards, and they know it inside and out, but they don't see Jesus in it. We become like whitewashed tombs, Jesus said. We we become like a cup that's shiny on the outside, but on the inside we're we're, we're dirty and filthy. We we become like we're filled with death and and, and with hatred and with darkness. And and we're merely trying to modify our external behavior, missing the point of the scriptures. That's why the gospel has got to be central. In fact, I'm going to show you this morning real quick that this isn't just Paul's fancy idea that he came up with. Because 
because he was dealing with the church in Corinth and there's rampant immorality and there's all sorts of conflict. And he's like, hey, let's just come back to this one thing because I really don't know how to deal with the mess here. I'm going to show you that this is really what Jesus taught. That Jesus was as centered on himself as Paul is centered on him for, for the thing that cures all the things. So for instance, in John chapter 5, Jesus is, one of, is in one of his confrontations with the, the, the religious rulers and leaders of his day. And, and they, they keep challenging him on tangential, peripheral things that don't matter about things like whether or not he washed his hands the right way or whether or not his disciples healed someone on a Sabbath day. Just all this stuff that's really peripheral to the point of what everything in the Old Testament was leading to in the person of Jesus. And so Jesus basically just comes out and says it. He's like, hey guys, here's the issue. Here's the problem with your form of religion. Here's the problem with the way you read the Bible. John chapter 5, Jesus says in verses 37 through 40, The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard and his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Now, that is a really arrogant claim if Jesus isn't the only son of God. He just had the audacity to tell a people who've been studying this text that's been around for a couple thousand years that their entire ethnic and national identity is built around. He just has the audacity to say, you know what, you've been reading that book for a really long time and you've missed the point because it's me. Unless he's telling the truth. And if he is, it's a very important point. He says, look, God gave you the scriptures. God gave you his law. God gave you these experiences, he's telling the Israelites. He gave you all these things so that you would see me, the one whom he has sent. And if you come to me, you will have life. Don't come to me. There is no life. Now, lest we think that it's only like hyper-religious sort of uber-conservative types who can perhaps fall into this error of reading the Bible all the time and not getting it, let's look at one other place. In Luke's gospel, as Luke is bringing the gospel to a close, he's, Jesus has died and been resurrected. And he tells the story of two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they're walking around and they're distraught and they're bordering on depressed because they spent the last three years of their life as disciples of Jesus following him around. And Jesus appears to them and they don't, at first, they don't at first acknowledge him. They don't even see and understand that it's him. Jesus has been resurrected and they're not getting it. And so then Jesus comes up to them and he says, look, if you really want to get it, here's what we got to do. Post-resurrection, Jesus has a Bible study. Luke chapter 24, he says, he said to them, oh, foolish ones. Slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have sp has spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So Jesus says, okay, you're, you're struggling, you're, you're suffering, you may be depressed because you don't know why your life has turned out this way. Let's have a Bible study. Let's go look at the Old Testament. And I'm going to show you how Moses and the prophets... And everyone was talking about me. And the cure for, their, for, for their, 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 their momentary affliction, the cure for their, uh, for their depression, the cure for their, their thing that they're wrestling with in that moment is, is to see Jesus in all of Scripture. It's why Paul says here to a church that's in you know, disarray, I want to I show you the most important thing, that which is of first importance, the hope of the gospel. 
Luke would go on and say, after that encounter, the disciples eat, eat with, with Jesus and their eyes are opened in the breaking of bread. And then Jesus reappears to them and he does the same thing again. Look, look at the end of Luke. He says, then he said to them, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. In other words, the way that the disciples are going to be dispersed to go make more disciples is by keeping the main thing the main thing, by remembering the gospel in all of scripture. It is essential. It is central. Without it, we are without hope. What that means for us as a church is it means that we're not going to major on the minors. And what's minor in light of the gospel? Everything. It means we're not going to spend endless amounts of time debating peripheral things like economics or politics or the end times or, uh, or, or spiritual gifts. Like those things are important, but, but they're not the main thing. This is the main thing. And I don't even know how we can really even contend that it's not. If Jesus and the rest of the New Testament says, oh, by the way, the whole point of the Bible is me being Christ, then why would we want to major on anything else? Why would we want to center our, our devotional life, our hearts, our, our, our purpose, our mission on something other than Christ? It means that we can never be content to reduce Jesus to a list of rules to follow or some form of new age self-help or some kind of example that is merely set that this is what we're supposed to do. We come to him to have life. And that's why the third point is so important this morning. We do this because the gospel alone is transformational. The gospel alone transforms us. Now, it's interesting that Paul tells the story the way that he does. He starts with, I'm going to remind you of the gospel. You received it. You, you're standing in it. If you continue to believe it, you'll ultimately be transformed into glory by it. It's the most important thing because Jesus lived our life, died our death. He appeared to Cephas. He appeared to the 500, some of which are still alive, which if you want to dig into that, Paul is essentially saying, look, if you think there's something else more important, go interview one of these people. They're out there. He tells the church in Corinth, like, hey, he does the same thing in the book of Acts to King Agrippa. He says, look, man, if you think I'm making this up, it didn't happen in a corner. Those are, that's literal words. This happened in times and space. And the people who saw it are still alive. Go check it out. But if that's not enough, Paul says, I just want to talk about what it's done in my own life. So look at how he says this. He says he appeared to, to Cephas and then to the 500 and to James and all the apostles. And then in verse 8, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Now, if you know anything about the life and the resume of the Apostle Paul, who was first called Saul before he came to faith in Jesus, you would know that was a different dude than the one talking here. The, the Saul of the book of Acts, the person pre-Jesus who's going around persecuting the church, he's pretty high on himself. He thinks he's a big deal. And I'll be honest, he kind of is. He was trained at the feet of one of the leading rabbis in first century Jerusalem, this guy named Gamaliel. He, he speaks Greek like a Greek. He's, he's incredibly fluent and skilled and articulate as a, as a, as a writer and a communicator of the gospel. He, he's got a pretty sharp pedigree. If you go look at, at places like Philippians chapter 3 where Paul says, look, I was, 
I was of the right tribe of, of, of Israel. I was circumcised on the eighth day. When it came to the way that people did resume values in the first century, I was the man. That's essentially what he says. As it pertained to the law, I was blameless. Like, you guys want to do a who's the most holy one? I would have won the contest. He says, but in light of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, I've come to consider all those things as rubbish. And he uses a pretty scandalous word when he's talking about rubbish. Dog stuff. He's like, that's what my life was really like. I thought that it was amazing. But in fact, in light of knowing Jesus, my Lord, and and experiencing a, a life like his, that I may experience a resurrection like his and enter into his sufferings, man, that old way of life is gone. And that's essentially what he says here to the church in Corinth. He says, look, Jesus appeared to me, and I was, it was an untimely birth for me because I was a persecutor of the church. In other words, he had every right to let me go straight to hell, but he didn't. And he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And then not only did it, did it transform me from this person who was living this one way to something else, but I worked harder than others. Unless you think that he's bragging, he says, but it really wasn't me that was working. It was God's grace that even made me a hard worker. So he's come to see that the root of the gospel connected to his heart makes it to where he can't take credit for anything good in his life. He realizes it's because Jesus lived his life and died his death that he is who he is. In other words, the reason that we have to keep the gospel central, the reason that we have to continue to come back to the fact that it is essential for for growth in Christ-likeness and holiness is because only in the gospel can you hold on to humility and confidence at the same time. It's the only way. Because if you get, like, in your own eyes, super holy and righteous, you, you'll, you know, you'll, you'll be confident, but you won't be humble. And, and the gospel's transactional, relational mechanism is humility. It's this thing where I stand shoulder to shoulder with all of you as a, as a sinner in, in desperate need of salvation. And the only hope I got is that Christ lived, died, and rose again. It's the, same, it's the only hope you have as well. So if you get like super holy in your own eyes, you'll never really be transformed. You've got to stay low before the foot of the cross because that's what the ground's like there. Everyone's on, on level ground. But, you'll, but if you stay there and you realize you're a wicked sinner in need of salvation, you, you may be humble, but you'll never be confident. But the good news of the gospel is you, you were so wicked that Christ had to die, but you were so loved, he willingly did so. And so it's in that humble confidence that Paul talks about here that that the gospel actually begins to transform people. It makes it to where we don't have dividing lines or, you know, classes. Someone's up a notch on me. Someone's better than me. Someone's worse than me. It's because we're all level. We're all recipients of sheer grace. Or as Paul would say to the church in, in Ephesus, it is by grace we are saved through faith, not by works so that none of us get to boast. No one gets to brag. And when we get that, when we understand that, the gospel begins to transform us. That's, what, that's why I almost went to Galatians 2. Because there Paul says he had to confront the apostle Peter. He says that Peter, who had believed the gospel, was, was hanging out with Gentiles. And then when brothers from Jerusalem showed up, guys who believed that circumcision was still necessary to get in and be a part of the right people, Peter pushed away from the table. He's like, I don't know these Jokers, they're gross. They're not circumcised. They're Gentile sinners. And Paul says, I had to confront him to his face because his conduct was not in keeping in step with the gospel. In other words, Peter, if you were saved the way they were saved, if you were saved in like Acts 14 and 15 says that dietary restrictions are not the thing that gets anyone into heaven, you can't push away from the table. 
That's the gospel, the good news of gospel freedom. We can be around and with anyone because we're all sinners in need of redemption. And when we get that, Paul says, we're transformed. How so? We're transformed because the gospel's personal. It's personal. Paul says it here. I was untimely born. I had no, I had no leg up on anyone. I had no right to, to take hold of the things of the kingdom of God or of Jesus. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's personal. Again, Galatians chapter 2, Paul says, look, Christ loved me and gave himself for me. For me, personally. And, and because of that, it's transformed everything. It's reshaped my entire life. It's reoriented my very existence. The gospel has got to be personal. Had it not been for a local church that enculturated the gospel for me, had it not been for a local church that allowed me to be a, the mess that I was and I still continue to be at times, had it not been for a local church of people who said, hey, it's okay to not be okay, it's just not okay to stay there. Had it not been for that, I don't think I would be here today. But because of all the people, as I said last week, the Lord placed in my life that, that embodied a desperate need for God's grace. Not in an arrogant, haughty way, like I figured this out and you little simpleton plebe may one day ascend to my higher order of thinking. But more of in a humble way, like, hey man, if it weren't for Jesus, I'd be way messed up than you could ever imagine. Had it not been for that, I wouldn't be a follower of Jesus. And so we, as the people of God, have this desperation about us to display our faith and our hope in the only, the only person who can save and rescue us, the person of Jesus. And it's when we, when we do that, when it gets personal, when it pierces the heart, that's when the gospel begins to transform us. That's when it stays essential. That's when it stays central in all that we do and all that we say and all that we believe. So God, I pray this morning that for those in the room for whom it may not yet be personal, that you would grip them. But the overwhelming truth that, Jesus, you lived for us and you died for us. You have an unending love that is always reaching for us, always pursuing us, always beckoning us to, to repent and to turn by faith. Lord, would that, that love once again captivate our hearts and our minds? That we would be a people who would rejoice, who would uh, have, have gratitude and gladness in our hearts and our souls and that would exhibit that to the world that desperately needs to see it because that's what it means uh, for the gospel to reign true in our life. So Lord, would you do that by, by the power of your spirit and the truth of your word in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.